Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Hank Shaw with the Hunt Gather Talk podcast sponsored by Bilson and Hunt to Eat. Welcome to the show. This is episode three, and today we are going to go in depth all about snipe. Yes, snipe. You heard correctly. Snipe is a real bird. It is not a mythical thing that you did when you were in the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. It's a real honest-to-God bird. And I'm going to be talking with Scott Lindars of Marsh Doodle, and we're going to talk all about this amazing little bird that inhabits the edges of marshes from coast to coast. You can find them in pretty much every state and all over the world, as a matter of fact. So without further ado, let's talk all things snipe with Scott Lindars of Marsh Doodle. Scott Linders, welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am very, very happy to have found you and have to have found your website, Marsh Doodle. I think you may be one of the few, the proud, the other really super dedicated, if not manic, snipe hunters. And that is what we're going to talk about today. Manic. I, I, I like that. Yep. Happy to be here. And, and hello, everyone. Excited to talk all things snipe. Let's start by uh, letting everybody out there know, well, so who are you? What do you what do you do? Like, why, you know, why are you on the podcast and not somebody else? And uh, I definitely want to hear about Marsh Doodle. Oh, God, that's a good question. All right. So, uh, of course, my name, I'm Scott Lindars. I live down in southwest Florida. I've been in Florida for about 15 years. And just recently, uh, we relocated over to the West Coast on the banks of the Caloosahatchee River in Fort Myers. So uh, a nice view of the water I'm looking out on and pretty close to some some hunting grounds over here, which was one of the reasons we, we chose to move over here, among others. But um, I was getting tired of driving two, two and a half hours um, every time I wanted to go snipe hunting. So I've got a lot of good stuff right there in my backyard. How did you start snipe hunting? It was really kind of born out of sort of necessity I guess kind of stepping back a little bit to kind of set the context, I, I, I hunted a whole bunch in, co- in college when I lived out west, out in uh, Montana and Wyoming, and um, never snipe hunted out there, but mostly uh, duck hunted, big game, and a little bit of um, upland. And then when I first moved down to Florida, man, it was so like foreign and intimidating, just the world of hunting. I mean talk about a, a complete landscape change um, from from the mountains to, uh, you know, the Everglades and the marshes. And I kind of had hung up my my hunting hat, so to speak, you know, out, out of, again, sort of out of force necessity. Just I didn't have anyone to hunt with, didn't really know the terrain, uh, didn't have a boat. Uh, and then that started to slowly change, you know, by, by fortune, a good friend got a duck hunt for uh, his Christmas gift from his wife on a Groupon. I went along with him. Duck a hunt. duck hunt on a Groupon? That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I owe it all, we joke about it because we, we really owe it to this girl for getting you know him and then getting me back into it. Um, but yeah, he, he had gone out, came back saying how great it was and, and you know having done it already, I said, sure, I'll, I'll go again. And we went, went with a guide and did that for a couple years, just doing you know, two or three guided hunts up on Lake Okeechobee a season. And that was really limited. That was really all I was doing. And then as I got more into uh, duck hunting, I, I was just starting to look at what else can I do around the same time we were getting a new dog, a Brittany, and had always kind of wanted, wanted a bird dog. So those kind of things came together where I was looking for more opportunities, things I could do on my own, had a dog, 
obviously wanted to put him to use. And so what were my opportunities? You know, quail was, was kind of the first thing my mind went to. That's why you get a Brittany. I mean, it's a very typical uh, quail dog down there. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, wanted, I wanted a pointing dog. I, I had hunted over a few friends, uh, you know, back in college and, and had, you know, seen how they work. Didn't really want a, a, a lab, despite, you know, doing a lot of duck hunting just with, with gators and snakes. It was kind of not something I wanted to jump right into there. I've heard. Just kind of looking at, okay, where could I quail hunt? Um, you know, going up to a preserve and, and going with a guide um, was not really appealing. It was going to get expensive in a hurry. Um, didn't want to join a, a club and have to, you know, have a fixed amount of date. So, so yes, there is good quail hunting in, in South Florida on public land. But kind of reading through that, I, I stumbled upon snipe. And, and like most people, I saw it in, in the regulations and didn't even at that point quite honestly, no, it was a game bird, knew of the bird. And, you know, we can talk about the, the, the childhood fable and prank behind it, um, oh, yeah. which was my only exposure to it. Um, but I was, you know, just started reading up on it and found out, oh, there was a season, read a little bit of, you know, on the, the habitat and, and the terrain, and then quite uh, just set out on my own. Uh, got a little bit of a tip from um, a friend, Tony, on, you know, a spot I might want to go check out, but just packed up the car have the dog with me that day it was just myself and my 12 gauge and went out into the into the marsh and flushed my first snipe flushed it three times and on the third time i actually ended up knocking it down well you tired uh, him out yeah and, and i was like okay i gotta get it eventually um but that was kind of a good little introduction to you know their behavior and that, that was it at that point i was like i like this this is cool. I had the whole, you know, management area to myself. Didn't see another hunter that, that whole time. And um, that was that was season one of snipe hunting going back. And what year was that? Uh, I think that was four seasons ago. So ah, uh, interesting. I've been hunting snipe longer than you have then. So that's fascinating. Oh, I, yeah, I'm definitely not. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's guys who have hunted snipe for way longer, way more many days of days of field. Um, so I, I don't for a second claim to be um, the most experienced or knowledgeable. But you have the zeal of a convert. I've got, yeah, I've got the convert and, and, and I put some, you know, some of the energy and, and passion around it, uh, which is kind of where the, the whole marsh doodle thing um, started. But yeah, I think this is, this is my fourth full season of hunting them. And um, in just a matter of days, in fact, how many? Let me look at my calendar. November first is when our season opens. So, so they're open in many, many states right now, and and we're going to get into migratory states versus wintering states because you and I both live in wintering states. Yep. Hey, I'd like to take a minute to thank the CC Filson Company for sponsoring this podcast. Filson is the original Alaska outfitter. They started in 1897 outfitting miners for the gold rush on the Klondike. And ever since then, they have been committed to making the best equipment available. I know I've worn Filson for 20 some odd years, both in the field and just around town. I am committed to their Upland game gear. I think it's the best. It stands up to everything and it lasts forever. Be sure to check out Filson's holiday gift guide at filson.com. For all your hunter, angler, gatherer gift needs, they have awesome stuff, not only for Upland, but for walking around town gear, travel stuff, as well as really good stuff for deer and duck hunting. So check them out at filson.com. So let's stop for a second and deal with the elephant in the room, which is the snipe hunt. 
So everybody has heard of the snipe hunt. Uh, have you ever actually been been put on a snipe hunt in i have yeah and i was gonna ask you if you have (laughs) i haven't actually i've heard about it but i think i heard that it was a joke you know early enough where i'm like yeah you know i'm not gonna do that thing because i think we're both from new jersey originally and it definitely is a summer camp thing there and and as far as i know it is a summer camp thing all over is it a camp thing for you it was on a boy scout camp out i was probably a, a cub scout maybe a bear badge I can remember, you know, somewhere in New Jersey, I can't remember where, where we were, and the older kids, I guess the Weeblos um, or whatever, the, the the next grade up, they they came over into, you know, into the Cub Scouts camp and talked about, oh, hey, we got to show you how to do this, get your flashlight. And so, yeah, me and, you know, four or five other naive, you know, Cub Scouts were out there in the woods with sticks and, and flashlights and completely fell for it. Um, and yeah, that, that's kind of the true to form. It's, you know, take a couple uh, naive kids out in the woods, chase, you know, give them a flashlight or a bag and keep them occupied for a while, expecting a, a little bird to run into it. Oh, but they should have just kept you going night after night after night. But it's funny. I, that was like my only exposure to, to uh, the quote unquote snipe hunt. You know, I think at that point I was, um, you know, wise to it, but. And all my other times, you know, camping and being out in the woods and being out west, I never heard anyone, um, you know, bring it up or try to get anyone else to fall for it. So I have heard of it, you know, all the various variations. You've got the bag and the flashlight. You've got the salt shaker. You got to salt the oh, I don't tail because uh, otherwise he'll fly away. You've, there's just so many different versions of it. And do you have any indication of what the history of that is? Yeah. I, I mean, at what point it became a prank? That I am not a little, you know, 100% clear on, but I think especially woodcock as well. But you know, woodcock snipe, they're in the they're in the same genus. In terms of doing like counting and and you know probably tagging and um, you know research on it, ornithologists, biologists, etc. You know, they would go out at night, uh, often with these big big lights. You can imagine, you know, now we got these nice little compact, you know. LED lights, but these are big, big, giant, uh, probably you know, high-pressure sodium lights that they would have on the top of tops of cars, and they would drive them out in the country roads or the the wetlands and the lowland areas, and trying to flush the snipe or the woodcock, um, and then they'd have other guys with you know big nets, uh, you know, um, birding nets, to try and actually catch them. So. Uh, as far as I've read, that's sort of the the derivative between, or you know, where the act, the actuality of it into the game. And again, at some point, um, someone said, "Let's go trick some kids with this." It's really interesting. So I looked it up, and the first reference in the English language to a snipe hunt in terms of the prank that we're familiar with is all the way back to 1840, which is fascinating to me because that's only maybe 20 years after the advent of modern bird hunting, because we didn't really hunt birds in the way that you and I do until about the 1820s with the advent of better shotguns. So not too long after that, the snipe hunt as prank appears in the English language, and then it kind of floats along a bit. So you also have a, a, a very long period of market gunning and just sort of great white hunter stuff in the late 1800s and early 1900s for snipe, where you've got guys like... There's a guy named Pringle who shot 80,000 snipe in his career and recorded every one of them and crazy stuff like that. 
plus habitat loss in the beginning of the 20th century started to put the wood to them in terms of numbers. And then the Migratory Bird Treaty of 1918 limited the, the – we basically had bag limits for the first time. So that limited it a bit. And, and as everybody listening to this knows, a snipe is not a very big bird. So you've got a declining hunter effort as you're going further and further and further. Mm-hmm. And then the key moment is January 1940. So have you heard about this one? January 1940. So January 1940, it was the hardest, nastiest, longest freeze in the Gulf of Mexico in the last hundred years. So it really, really knocked down all of the wintering birds that required unfrozen ground. And the snipe and the woodcock are two of them. It knocked them down so bad that Fish and Wildlife closed the season on them starting in 1941. And that season remained closed all the way until 1953. As the story goes, and if you're ever really interested, it's like super geeky interested in, in Snipe. We're going to go into some books later, but there's a my favorite one is a, a book called Reflections on Snipe by a guy named Worth Mathewson. And he retells the story that in, in 1952, the son of the editor of Field and Stream, a guy named Dan Holland, was up hunting ducks in Alaska with a head of fish and wildlife. And as they were hunting ducks in, I think it was in the Kuskokwim, the Kuskokwim Delta in, in Alaska, they kept flushing snipe and flushing mm-hmm. more snipe and flushing more snipe. And he kept pointing it out to the fish and wildlife guy. And like, you know, look at all these snipe and we don't have, we haven't had a season on them since 1940. You might want to do something. And sure enough, 1953, they reopened the season. But, but what had happened was, an entire generation of upland gunners had forgotten that this bird even exists, which is why I think when you and I go around everywhere and we will talk about snipe hunting, you get the little chuckle and then you get people who absolutely are convinced that it's not a real bird. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know any of the, you know, that degree of the, the, the history on it. It's fascinating. I mean, I think more than any other creature that we hunt in North America, the snipe is clearly the one where we get the most raised eyebrows. Yeah, if you mention you're a, a pheasant hunter, a quail hunter, a, a grouse guy, no problem. You know, just conversation will carry on. But the, but the snipe is the is the little oddity out there in the upland world, and I think that's why a lot of people like you and me and and you know the, the diehards like it because it it is something different. It's less um, pretentious, I would say. It's more approachable. Um, I feel it's kind of more like a, a working man's uh, bird to go after. It's interesting because it never used to be. It used to be super, super, you know, patches on the elbows kind of thing. And I, I think since the 1960s, it's become what you're talking about, where Woodcock still has an aura of aristocracy around it, but Snipe, much, much less so. And I think from what I've gathered, again, by gathered, you know, just um, – gleaming off of Instagram and pictures, the folks over in Europe and, and Italy and Spain and France where, where it's equally popular. I think there it is still very much the, um, you know, put on your, your nice wool and your tweeds and um, a, little, a little bit more of a proper uh, gentleman's sport. Oh yeah. The Irish and the French are legendary. So the Irish love snipe hunting so much. I don't know if it's still on their 50 pence piece, but a, a snipe on the wing is, is on their money. It's a, it's such a big deal there. Oh, that'd be cool to have a 
have some of those. At, at I know. I kind of want. I I want to go to Ireland anyway, and and I think I, now I have to go to Ireland and hunt some snipe and get a fifty pence piece. Yeah. Last time I was there, I didn't even uh, know about a snipe, so I would have probably had that that piece in the hand and handed over to a cashier. I never never would have slowed down looking at it. I know. I've had some Irish money in my in my possession before too, but I didn't I didn't start hunting snipe until about nine or about two thousand four. So. Um, it's been quite a long time since I've been over there. So, so how did you uh, stumble upon upon the little quirky bird? So very similar reasons. So I started hunting only about 18 years ago, and I started as a squirrel and a rabbit hunter, and then I moved to pheasants, and I moved to deer, and then I moved to California in 2004. And duck hunting is amazing here. But deer hunting is very difficult. I mean, we have deer, but we have the lowest success rate in the United States for deer. And I kept finding myself in the marshes all the time looking for ducks. Well, nobody ever taught me how to hunt ducks. So it was a combination of me literally blundering around the marsh and some guided hunts to get some actual legitimate education. So in the process of blundering through the marsh, I kept seeing these all these other birds, all the, the, the rest of the residents of the marsh, right? So the first thing I knew that I could kill legally were coots and moorhens. So I became the guy at the Grey Lodge Refuge back in 2004 and 2005. Oh, that's the guy that kills all the coots and moorhens. <laughs> right? And wrong with that. So then the guy, the check station guys were like, you should, you should hunt snipe. I'm like, oh, yeah, I see them all the time. And their, their first thing that they say is, be sure that you know what a snipe is. So um, – I, you know, as a forager, I'm pretty good with pattern recognition. So I did some reading and did some more reading and then went online to the, like the Cornell Bird Lab and listened to their sounds and and worked and worked and worked. And then I'm like, OK, I know I know which, which is a snipe and which isn't a snipe. But it took a fair bit of homework. and We'll get into that in a little bit. And I flushed probably, I don't know, 50 of them before I ever took a shot because I wanted to be double dog sure that mm-hmm. I didn't shoot something that wasn't wasn't legal. And this is. This is the single largest issue with snipe hunting, I think, in, in modern day. Yeah. And and so I ended up shooting one, then I shot two, and you know I have a uh, I have a common hashtag on Instagram, hashtag give a pluck. So mm-hmm. I pluck every one of my birds, and I found that they were kind of annoying to pluck because they're kind of a hybrid between an upland bird and a duck in the sense that they pluck pretty easily like a duck, but they've got little black down feathers which can be annoying. Um, I've since figured out how to, how to deal with them much better, but they were fantastic. And the thing I had already been woodcock hunting, so I knew what a woodcock tasted like, and there are no woodcock in the West. So I have no option of hunting woodcock unless I go 2000 miles to my East. So this was that. So that kind of lit a bit of a fire underneath me. And then Chime in here if, if, if you have the same experience. With duck hunting in a wintering ground, one of the reasons the birds are there in the winter is because it's really nice and calm and wonderful. Well, really nice and calm and wonderful is a terrible day to hunt ducks. It's terrible. Bluebird's fine, but if there's no wind and it's relatively warm, you got maybe a 90 minutes of duck hunting and then the birds are just maybe going to fly a little bit. Yep, well, yep. the snipe like it. So I very quickly brought a bunch of steel sevens and so this is before we were required to shoot steel in california but i I wanted to be able to shoot a duck if i had also seen a duck so i i switched over to steel very early 
And in the middle of the day, it means gorgeous. It, it could be 55, 60 degrees and sunny and no wind. I could be banging away at snipe and everybody else in the duck blinds were like, what is he shooting at? That's crazy. And I could come home with maybe not a limit, but four to six, sometimes eight snipe. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. And and so now it's, I've just I'm kind of gotten religion about it. Yeah, I, I think you touched on something that's nice is the it's not just an early morning thing. Um, you know, I don't know that it really pay. And, and there's one situation where I think it does pay to be out there really early. But for the but, most part, it's a, it's a all day activity. I mean, if you called me up and said, I've, I've only got time from one to three in the afternoon to go. OK, fine. We're still going to find them. They might they'll be in a different spot, you know, that time of day, probably. Uh, maybe not out on the edge, but you're not restricted just to, you know, those ungodly or early morning hours like you are with duck hunting. For sure. Let's, let's get into the actual hunting in a minute. I want to go, there's one more. This is crazy. This is the thing about this particular podcast is that every episode is going to focus on a different animal. And almost all of these animals have some kind of myth or lore or, or greater connection to the larger society to them. And We've talked about the snipe hunt, and the other one is just the very word sniper. Yep. Yeah, and, and that goes back to what we would think of it as, you know, the shooting from a, you know, a, a, a long distance from a concealed position. That's what we think of it, you know, in, in military terms. But mm-hmm. but that that goes back, um, you know, quite some time. Do you know the origins of that? I don't know them as well as that I do the origins of snipe hunt, but I'm guessing it comes from probably after the Civil War. Yeah. And it's kind of ironic there that there is that correlation. I mean, on the one hand, both in theory, difficult shots, but you think about the precision of a sniper where you're, you're arrested, taking a very uh, calculated, thoughtful uh, shot and then, you know, shotgunning and any, any bird, but especially, um, you know, snipe, it's, it's quick, it's reflex. Um, there's, you know, there's no thinking involved because, uh, we, you know, if you stop to think, you'll miss. It's a whole about ref- reflexes. And the one thing they do have in common is definitely a challenging shot. Uh, you know, some people say they're one of the, the hardest birds to shoot, uh, but or they're definitely on the upper end of it. Um, For sure. Hey, I, all right, so I looked it up. The verb to snipe originated in the 1770s among soldiers in British India in reference to shooting snipes, which is considered an extremely challenging game bird for hunters. The agent noun sniper appears by the 1820s in the sense of the word sharpshooter. So it's it, it, it's, a, it's a British term that it predates the, the American Civil War. So there you go. There you go. All right. Let's talk about that, You know about the difficulty of shooting snipe. If you talk to the old timers, they say that there's really two good times to shoot a snipe right when he gets up and then after he finishes doing the zigzag are you a uh, are you a snap shooter or are you uh, uh are you like to get him when they st- when they stop zigzagging uh, i think all being all things being equal if you can get them when when they're when they're just coming up that's a great time to, to get them because it's typically just a nice going away shot um or you know off to your side mm-hmm and yeah, once on they, they do, you know, so the flight pattern is, is just what you describe for, you know, as we bring people up to speed, they'll, they'll make their initial flush. And I don't know, what would you say? You've got 10, 20 yards of, of kind of straight takeaway, and then they get into a, a pretty erratic uh, zigzag pattern. And, and, and that's when you can waste a lot of ammo. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's until you get until you know that you've got two chances and there's a middle time where you just need to look at them. You, oh, it's just, it's ugly. 
yeah. Take a take a shell, a box of shells with you on a snipe hunt, and make sure you've got a couple more um, waiting in the truck. I'm much more of a snap shooter, and I don't oh, hunt snipe with a dog. So I, I can I can get on them really quick, and I don't have a I don't have to worry about a, a dog between me and the and the bird. Mm-hmm. So you have to wait that extra half second because you got to wait for the bird to lift over the over the dog. Yeah. Oh God. Last year that was kind of killing me because it was we had a really bad season last year um you know in terms of bird counts at least in florida was really really dry and i can't tell you how many birds i just had to pass on because you know because the bird you know was in front of the dog and i wasn't able to get that clean shot normally that's not a problem okay move on to the next but when when you were only moving five six birds a day yeah that was quite a handicap i have found that the the second method the wait until they straighten out that's almost if not more challenging in the sense that by the time they do that they're about 40 to 50 60 yards out so the only time i ever had a really fun time doing that because normally i shoot and we can talk about guns in a second normally i shoot a very short barreled frankie veloce in 20 gauge over and under with a 20 it's a 24 inch barrel and that's fantastic for snap shooting but you don't get that great pull through that you would with a 28 or a 30 inch barrel gun and i shot a friend's 30 inch barrel 20 gauge and it was a it was an auditor mm-hmm. wow that was it was like night and day i mean it's the it allowed me to do that pull through on the the longer birds and it was just dropping them left and right that i could not do with my short barreled over and under yeah, that little 24, that's probably great for the woodcock woods, but... <laughs> it is, it really is. What do you end up shooting most of the time? And the answer to that will change in a few hours, because this afternoon after this podcast, I'm going to pick up a new gun. But um, nice. I've, I've shot everything from, I mean, when I, for when I first started, I was I was just using my, my 12-gauge duck gun, because that's all I had, with uh, whatever steel shot I, I could find, uh, you know. Which Autoloader was, or pump or... Autoloader. Um, that, that was a, a Benelli, um, Benelli Vinci. Oh, okay. And last, it was last year or the year before, I picked up two uh, Ithaca side-by-sides. Um, one is a 20, which was kind of my go-to gun. And then I found a really cheap 16-gauge uh, for like $215. So I snatched that up. was using them both. Yeah, that was two seasons ago. 16 on a moorhen hunt two years ago, ended up breaking, which is uh-huh. really unfortunate. Um, the so, um, part of the ejector, a little a little tab or a tang broke off, and hmm. I just can't unfortunately find a part from it. So I, I can manually extract the shells. Um, it's just not very convenient. Right. Now on a, on a moorhen hunt where you're only you know shooting and then you've got time to reload, it, it's not so bad. But um, since then, I haven't been able to use that one in the field because it's just kind of, I have to break it down to get the shell out. So uh, for the last year, it was the 20 gauge. I think I use that exclusively for dedicated snipe hunts, meaning where I, I was only going out um, to snipe hunt. And like you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of times where I want to mix the two and, and do um, a little bit of duck, maybe at first light, and then move on to snipe. So, so those days, I would still bring um, my 12 gauge. And the reason with that old Ithaca was an Ithaca flues from like 1910 or 12. It only shoots a two and a half. Oh, wow. Which 
extra pain to get you got a mail order to get those but you forget about being able to go down to walmart or bass pro or anywhere else and find steel in that in that size so um that was kind of dictating which which particular gun i i would take and then this afternoon i'm picking up the cz bob white gen 2 which was the remake of their of their old classic um bob white and i'm getting that one in 28 gauge so I made a post the other day, like, <laughs> it was like, I really needed to make uh, shooting these things more difficult. <laughs> I was just going to say, I'm like, 28 gauge, huh? That's going to be gonna be fun if a, if a duck gets up, too. Yeah, I, I well, I, I was intrigued by the weight of it. It was only five and a half pounds with 28-inch barrels. Neat little gun. It's got the English straight stock, hmm. um chokes and versus fixed. So kind of brings the the modern you know benefits to an otherwise classic looking gun um you know, wasn't very expensive should be a good all-around gun but i'm definitely gonna wonder how my um target practice <laughs> is gonna go you're gonna find out yeah i'm gonna go pick up a, a case of sh- uh clays and i've got two boxes of shells sitting on my floor and on friday afternoon we'll find out there you go so I, I I've generally settled on 20 gauge seven steel seven and a halfs and uh, I, I you know the barrel choice is yours but and I tend to use uh because I use that over and under a lot it's improved and modified the two different barrels and I have definitely found that your style of shooting determines what your choke is if you're gonna shoot if you're gonna shoot long you know I don't know if that you need a full choke but you need something much more much more patterned for yeah. the if you're if you're waiting on them than if you're trying to get them right off the get-go yeah that's well that's what i like about the setup in in those ithacas is they are choked modified in full uh, fixed chokes you can't you can't change those ah, okay with the two triggers uh which i found to be a good combination for you know that first shot you can you can you know get on the on the flush with the front trigger and that'll shoot the modified and then for that follow-up longer shot, now you're already into that tighter full choke. Hmm. That goes great unless you're like me and like I don't know every other time I, I pull the wrong trigger. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That'll I be don't right. know what it is. My finger always goes to the back trigger, and, and like I'll, I'll shoot that full choke first. Let's move to the 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 first thing that you need to do if you want to go snipe hunting, which is to be able to identify what a snipe is. Right, right. Well, I guess the first thing you need to get. Get legal, get, get your license. Well, yes, that's true. <laughs> you know, your, your story you, you told earlier about focusing, identifying them, it, it parallels that the first one I flushed and how it, it, I got three flushes out of it. And the first one I didn't even in shoot because caught me by surprise. I was by myself, had never seen one before other than pictures, I'd never heard one before other than, you know, audio files. So the first one was just like confirming wait, that was a snipe. And, you know, I was 95%, you know, positive about it. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm gonna, I saw it land. And so the next flush, I took a shot, missed. And then he landed, I don't know, another 100 yards down. Um, but after the second one, I, I knew I was onto the right bird. I think I can count on one hand the number of times I flushed a snipe where it didn't do that, that kind of scrapey, Yep. Squirky noise that they do when they flush. So it's it's a very distinctive. It's almost like when they take off, and some people write it as like escape. Yep. It's like yeah. A we'll have to interject kind of uh, 
the audio file of that you know in some post-production so we can because it's such a distinct sound and, oh, and yeah. you're right i'd say i don't know like you said nine out of ten you know maybe maybe a little less in my experience but most of the time they're going to make that noise and you know that that's a huge clue into okay i found the right bird yep that's so. a, that's a beginning one another one i find is it's very rare that a flock of snipe gets up they tend to hang around together but by themselves if that makes any sense like there might be a field with a hundred of them in it but they're not going to be like dowichers we're all going to be together and they're yep. going to be all doing their own thing in that field yeah yeah i i'd say i found that as well you might flush a single or a double um but i've never seen a group of a dozen get up now what what has happened is you get into an area and one goes and then maybe you take a shot and then another one goes, you take another step. And before you know it, you've got them flying, you know, everywhere, but they're all staggered, um, you know, within seconds of each other. Versus exactly. Them. And I hate it when that happens. Oh yeah. Because especially if you've dropped one and five others get up, you know, you have a dog, so you have an advantage. Uh, we should talk dogs in a second, but you have an advantage because your dog can can mark the first one that you shot and then you can mark the second one. Yeah. My strongest advice beyond ID of the birds that you're hunting in the marsh, for those of you listening out there, is to shoot one bird and walk straight at it. Don't take your eyes off where it falls oh at all, ever. And that's the, one of the, I think hardest things to force yourself to do and you know i won't proudly admit it but i've i've lost more snipe than i would like to admit by being greedy by trying to take the second shot or especially getting no. distracted because you do flush another one or a third one as you're as you're you're going to it because without a dog if you you have to just be so laser focused and not take your eye off it. I've had one. I'm walking to it, right? I'm almost there. I can almost see where it is, and I'm pretty sure I know exactly where it is. And then one flushes right beyond it. Like really? So here's what I do. If I have the dog, it, it is a heck of a lot easier. Now sometimes it's bad because he's out now making retrieve, likely to you know push up another one. And again, that just start bumping the birds sooner than you want to. And that's what I, that's why it kind of, when it gets mayhem, it, it's almost a bad thing because you would want to move a little bit more slowly, but it, uh, with or without a dog, but definitely without, this maybe talks to gear you would need. I keep two handkerchiefs in my, in either in my back pockets or my um, game bag. And as soon as I drop a bird, I drop that first handkerchief and just reach around without even having to take my eyes off it. So now I know where I was when the shot happened. Mm -hmm. And then I'll, you know, I'll lock in that on that singular spot. Maybe it's a, a blade of grass, maybe it's a twig, but you, you try to, you know, pick out something very exact where, where you think it fell. And again, laser focus, walk to it and then drop the other handkerchief or, or your hat or something. Yeah. I don't like taking my hat off. <laughs> so now I've got those two points of reference. Cause once you start walking around, uh, if you don't find it right away and you got your head down, it's so easy to veer off course. And, you know, you may, you know, after a few minutes, you're way off of the original marks. So, so I like having those two things. Cause if all else fails, you can go back to where you started re, you know, re 
lock in on your on your trajectory where you think it is um, and resume your search. And then the that's, other thing, you know, I, I, I really tip. found is wherever you think they are, I mean, sometimes they just stone fall, but they're past it, you know, because what we see, you know, as they're falling is that last reference mark, again, that blade of grass, that twig, um, but they're moving still. So, you know, you might find them five, 10 feet past where, where you think they are. Mm-hmm. The, the one good thing is I rarely get runners. Not like they're not like pheasants. Typically, if you if you don't drop one, it's not super mobile on the ground. So it's not like when you shoot a pheasant and drop a pheasant and you got to be damn well sure that that bird is is anchored. Otherwise, you could be on a, a wild chicken chase. I, I agree. I mean, and the other thing is like if, if you flush one, we're kind of jumping around here, but they and you don't shoot it, they are going to land. If you just watch that bird and get a, a mark on where it lands again, probably nine out of nine times, you're going to flush it again. Mm-hmm. Back to the walking thing. I don't see a lot of uh, times where you get up to it and you're like, man, where did that bird go? He walked away. Sometimes, but most of the time it's going to be holding and, and you'll get you'll get your follow-up opportunity. So I talked to a biologist and they will say that a lot of times the... By the way, for the record, we're always talking about the Wilson's snipe, which is uh, Galenago delicata. It's the only snipe that lives in North America. There's a lot of other kinds of snipes, but we only have the one in America. So everybody yep. calls them a jack snipe, but they're not a jack snipe. Yeah, over in Europe, we've got the common, the jack, and there's one other one. The great snipe. Yeah, the great, which is... Now, I want I got to get myself down to Paraguay and Argentina... And I have heard tell of a giant snipe that lives in sort of Argentina, Paraguay area that's double the size of our snipe. That's, that's got to be bigger than a woodcock then. <laughs> right? I, I think I need to eat this bird. You know what I, I, I was thinking about in, in reading this, or I mean, getting, doing all this research, reading up to this and doing reading. It was like there's a lot of other similar birds in the genus that is the the sandpiper family. We've got the woodcock, uh, the snipe. Those are the only two that you you can hunt. But you look at like say a plover, uh, very similar looking, has mm-hmm. all look and feel. How did how is it that the snipe became the the game bird and all the other ones uh, you know got a safe pass and were never um, hunted? Because I, I gotta imagine a plover tastes just as good. It has the same diet, has the same body structure. I'm just going to guess on this one, but back in the market gunning days and in the days before the Second World War, plovers were on the menu, curlews were on the menu. Um, there's a, a giant list of marsh birds that were that were fair game. Yeah. And the plover was one of the first to be taken off the game list, largely because of, of uh, unre- unregulated market hunting. But I have I have old cookbooks from like 1900 that have plover recipes in them, and oh yeah, golden plover. In I want to say in England they still hunt them. I think they do. I read something maybe two years ago in in Gray Sporting Journal about uh, you know guys going over there and and hunting them over decoys. My only guess is oh yeah decoys. This is another story. I get guys who tell oh you you gotta get snipe decoys. I'm like yeah you're high. Snipe don't decoy. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> we'll get into that. <laughs> um, but I, this is my guess. This is only my supposition is that as they bring birds out of the, the game category into the protected category, 
the history of snipe hunting is is such that it it whereas today it's pretty much everybody does it back then it was a bit of a patch on the elbow kind of hunting so my guess is that important rich influential people kept snipe hunting alive before the second world war and because they wanted to continue to hunt them after the second world war there's almost no place in the united states where there is a culture of snipe hunting florida is one of them louisiana is another but mm-hmm. there really isn't i mean i'll put it this way holly and i shot one third of all snipe killed on this particular very large public refuge and it's not like we killed that many the only, <laughs> only guys doing it <laughs> exactly so uh, that's just a guess of why snipe stayed on the on the the game bird list uh, i think the hunting pressure is arguably the least among most eh, i don't know Morehands, purple gallinules and rails are probably the least hunted legal game in the united states but snipes right in there yeah i think i'm me and my friends i think we're some of the i mean i see a few other guys doing it but yeah we go out for the Morehand opener every year and get on them a couple more times and you just do not see a lot of people doing it and i don't know why they're they're really good to eat they're not hard to shoot but they're good in the kitchen do you do you pick your more hens or do you skin them? That's a question of time. <laughs> so, uh, but you have you have picked a more hen and cooked it with a skin on. No, no, I but I cooked the legs of them. Okay. So how is how is the skin on them? That I was asking you that question because I've only ever skinned more hens. I have tried skin on coots, which are their cousin, and I was less than impressed. Um, the problem with a coot is. While he might look really fat, and their fat's often beautiful and white, it smells like the bottom of a pond. Yeah. So uh, I learned almost two, two decades ago that they're fine when you skin them, but they're not fine. The fat is, is very pondy. Whereas uh, snipe, on the other hand, I always pick those birds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah they're the little skin, what little fat they have is good. Oh, sometimes they're sometimes they're super fat you get that if you've ever hunted woodcock out there you know and and you've picked a woodcock um they have a very specific thick line of fat on either side of their breast that kind of curls around the the front of the breastbone and that fat is delicious yeah i've noticed it's really interesting to sort of watch the difference in the in, in in the fat on on birds and it's almost like you can tell that where they're coming from and i can't tri- triangulate it you know all the way up north but you know on the same day in the same you know week and month we found you know some birds have a, have tons of fat and, and others you know really just don't have any and i can only attribute it to hey the, these are the ones that are coming all the way down from canada and higher and the ones without fat maybe they're they're just coming down from new england and, and got out of town before it got cold but I'm having this, I've had the exact same experience. And my guess, again, this is just a guess, is that who's been here longest? So maybe the one, maybe your Canadian theory is right in the sense that not because they flew such a long way, but but they just got here. And and so they haven't had time to build up fat reserves. Yeah. And I I guess the inverse, if if they're coming down early, do they need as much, you know, fat down here, you know, from a from a warmth and insulation? That's um, true. That's true. You see pictures of people hunting them in the snow, um, you know, 
where it hasn't completely snowed over. So, so that, that they need to have that fat reserve to, to be able to stay warm in those conditions. Yeah, they have a little bit of down on them, which is uh, they're like I was mentioned before. They're kind of this weird, unique half upland, half waterfowl, and I mean that's kind of how you hunt them too. I mean, you know, we've talked about guns, and we've talked about you know I have typically chosen to hunt them with hip waders because while you will never find a snipe in a place where you need hip waders. Snipe mm-hmm. tend to fall in places where you need hip waders. Or getting across something. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what's your snipe habitat um, out like there uh, where you hunt? I typically hunt public land, and it is the our, it, the fringes of our duck refuges. So you, a flooded grain field, a flooded just regular fallow field. It should be squishy, and your feet should be wet, but you... I've never found them where my feet are underwater. It's yeah, always squishy boggy. That's that's the kind of guiding rule I go by. And if someone was asking where to look is, uh, and the opposite doesn't true. If your feet are dry, hey, you very well may find them. But if you're if you're over ankle deep water or your toes are covered, you're probably in too deep. Yep. They like grass. Yeah. So yeah, they. Uh, so the diet of them, as far as I know, is 80% of it is all fly larvae or other kinds of insects and a little bit of plant matter. But they're they're not strict earthworm eaters the way a woodcock is, but they, they really, really love little buggy fly larvae things. Yep. But they do eat worms. I shot one one time, and I as it was flushing, I could still see the, the worm hanging out of its mouth. <laughs> <laughs> it's flying away. And shot it and, you know didn't really think of it much of it and, and getting home that night i remember cleaning them and there was that worm all dried out at that point still hanging out of his mouth <laughs> nice so yeah you're you it was a good tip about if your feet are, are dry but you're looking for wet spots in dry fields sometimes yeah so not uh, all fields will be laser leveled like they are in california and so that you'll notice that there'll be a, a little spot in any given field that's damp or boggy or wet you can walk right up on that, and very many times you'll find a snipe somewhere in there. So that's interesting that you can hunt them on on the refuges out there, because at least in Florida, the places that are are permit only, and they're not. Well, some of them are refuges, but but the higher class duck hunting you know spots that are that are publicly and permitted access, none of them allow you to snipe hunt on during the regular season. Now there's there's a couple spots that have some dedicated days in there, um, but are really good permit-based places um, like Merritt Island National Ref- Wildlife Refuge, and we have this thing, these things called the stormwater treatment areas, which are in flooded uh, impoundments that are used to filter the water coming out of all the sugarcane fields, and it's world-class duck hunting, but no snipe access in there. Interesting. Uh, so we mostly are hunting them, uh, you know, on public land as well. And it could be, you know, potholes. If you look at, you know, sort of anywhere in the middle of Florida on Google Earth, you'll see all these, you know, just patchwork of, of little potholes. Um, and, and those are all really good um, habitat. And as the water recedes, it's, it's constantly creating, you know, new habitat as the water levels go up or down because that, that layer of mud is, mud is changing. So we look for those. Um, we look for cattle. Um, cattle fields can be great. Mm-hmm. For, I've hunted them too. 
and you know a lot of our public lands have grazing leases on them so you have the the cattle there uh, so it's not restricted to getting onto under private land and you know what a cattle do they they create mud mm-hmm. they poop um i've seen you know snipe making their little probing marks you know directly in the, in the cow pies oh yeah oh yeah yeah and you know around like the sort of the watering holes and the feeding stations where where you know they're wreaking havoc on on the actual habitat um makes for you know really good snipe habitat so um, cows are are definitely something we look for here under duck refuges you can find them often at the edges or on little muddy spits so there might be a big great big duck pond and there will be little islands or spits that stick out into the water that are kind of grassy muddy mm-hmm. and they will be they'll be in there and here tell me this i think i can count on one hand the number of times i have seen the snipe before it flushed yeah and i even see these guys taking pictures of them you know beautiful you know wildlife photography photos and i'm like man you i give it up to those people because rarely do you see one now i've seen them flying um i've seen them in the air i've seen coming in for a landing but yeah not that often do you do you see them get up from the ground (laughs) exactly oh so one little note you're talking about seeing them flying one good indicator if you happen to be duck hunting or something and you think you see a snipe they're super talky in the air you'll hear them like they'll do that little squitchy sound while they're flying which helps a lot in identifying them on the wing yeah and their flight like how they fly they so Talk about the flush. They do this, you know, sort of erratic zigzag, uh, which is when you're wasting your ammunition. And then at least the ones that we see down here, they'll go really, really high and do mm-hmm. giant circles. Now you read about people say if you flush one, it'll come back to, you know, and, and come back to where you were and, and land. And, and there's some truth to that. And I've definitely seen them, you know, get, get shot off you know taking a taking a pass but i've yet to see one you know come back and land, land in our feet um but when we do push them we don't get shots at them we like to kind of crunch you know crunch down and, and attempt to be camouflage but but they'll go really really high and, and take these big big giant you know loops around you know the field or the marsh um but they're not, you know, taken off. So if, if you can keep your eye on them long enough, eventually you will see them, you know, come down, mark it, and now you know where to head over to, um, or you know, mark it so you circle back there on your on your way through. Yeah, I find that works about 50% of the time. We have so much marsh ground where we hunt that the other 50% they're going to some other spot that they know, and you're like, bye bye, snipe. <laughs> Hey, I'd like to take a moment to say that Hunt to Eat is a proud sponsor of this podcast, which makes sense because I own and wear a lot of their shirts, hats, and other gear. When you reach into your drawer to grab a shirt to wear to a barbecue or a conservation event, you always grab the same one, right? Well, you're about to find your new favorite tea. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out their line of hunting and fishing lifestyle hats, hoodies, tees, and more. They're super soft, they're a great fit, and they're designed and printed in Denver, Colorado. Be sure to check out the new line of hunter, angler, gardener, cook apparel and use the promo code HANK10 for 10% off your first order. That's HANK10, H-A-N-K-10, and you get 10% off any hunter, angler, gardener, cook merchandise you feel like picking up and wearing to your next event. Thanks. You were talking about camouflage, and I pretty much generally wear 
you know, ye old Filson gear, like the Filson webbing uh, game vest and, and pretty much whatever else I'm, I happen to be wearing. I don't, I don't wear blaze orange and I, nor do I wear camo when I'm snipe hunting. I don't I, know I don't, that it's made a difference. I don't think camo would make a difference um, whatsoever. I mean, I, I wear a pair of upland pants, you know, with, with briar guards on it. What, you know, whatever shirt I happen to have. Uh, I, I like wearing a little bit of blaze. Um, I have some on my game vest and I wear, you know, or, an orange hat. Only because I'm usually with, you know, another gunner or two, and I don't think there's any harm in being seen, you know, seen to them. But I don't think it makes a difference to um, the snipe. They're going to see you towering six feet above. Right. Walking up to them as they're hiding in, you know, six inches of grass. And it's your present and your sound, I think, not not the color. That That is an excellent point. I have found in my experience, and you tell me yours, that... If you're with more than one person, they need to shut up because talking loudly will will make them wild flush. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I think how you approach an area is really important too, especially when it's in you know thinner cover. You know, you approach it the wrong way. I mean, they they can see you from like I said, you, it's hard for us to see them, um, but they see you coming and and they'll start you know flushing super prematurely. So you know, kind of playing the the cover like if i know i'm going to work up to an edge of, of a piece of water and that's generally where you're going to find them as we said you know maybe that first couple inches up to the first you know i don't know 10 yards in can you use the cover to as your concealment to, to work up to it um so they don't see you you know so so soon because that's frustrating when you're when you just see one after another just peeling away down the line and you're like oh, oh yeah yeah, now I gotta wait for them all to settle and, and change my tactic. I I find two things are also good help when you're actually trying to put some snipe in the bag. And one is if it's a good duck day, hunt ducks. Because I had the misfortune of hunting snipe in the Delta Marshes one year, and it was the only day that the photographer, a guy named Fred Greenslade, it was the only day he could come for Delta Waterfowl magazine to shoot this what was supposed to be an amazing snipe hunt up in the Delta marshes in Manitoba. And I had drawn them there the, because the previous year it was just epic. It was just snipes everywhere, everywhere. It was amazing. So I said, you got to come back. It's going to be amazing. Well, the only day that he could come back, there was probably sustained 30 to 40 mile an hour winds. And you have a split second to hit that bird on his way up. Otherwise he tips a wing and he's all the way in Alberta. And right. it's, it's a, ter- you know, high winds are terrible. Wind and rain is even worse. Rain with no wind is fine. Uh, but I mean, I find I have my, my best days where it's either no wind at all or a slight breeze. And then in which case I tend to, I tend to walk downwind because they like to flush into the wind. Right. Yeah. I was going to mention that. And on those really windy days where you're seeing them do that, where they, they were flushing into the wind and then, and then making off. The real windy day, were they flushing into the wind? They Well, I was pushing them. So okay. I think the deal with the highest winds was they were hunkered down so tight because he didn't want to fly, and then I would get right up on top of them, and then they'd freak out. Yeah. I didn't know the downwind trick at that point. So I think it's, if you can, play the wind, um, but I wouldn't let that be the you know, the only deciding factor in how I would work a, work a piece of area because you got to also factor 
your approach and, and are they going to see you and and all those things. But yeah, as a general rule, um, they'll flush into the wind, right? Yeah. yeah. Most birds do. Let's talk about dogs before we get to the food aspect of it. So I don't hunt with a dog and I have not heard of, well, let's just say I have heard very conflicting views on the utility of a dog while snipe hunting. I've heard everything from you have to have one to you shouldn't have one and everything in between. I do quite well without a dog, but then again, we've already talked about how the lack of a dog prevents me from shooting a potential double, but you've got a Brittany and I, I'm going to guess that you've hunted snipe with other people's dogs and I'd like to hear your experience. <sighs> yeah. Dogs and, and snipe. I think if I boiled it down, I think the biggest place they're going to help you is on the retrieve because I've got you know, plenty of guys who don't hunt with them. And, and I started out w- without a dog as well. And you, you move birds. If you're, if you're in the right area and you're walking the right piece of ground, you're, you're going to move birds. Um, but finding them is, is where I think a dog really, really shines. Again, without a dog, you know, more than I would want to admit, but, you know, probably over the years lost, you know, a dozen or more times I've had the dog with me. I've, I've never lost a snipe. Ah, okay. So that's, that's what I really like about it. Cause nobody likes to do that. And I'm one of those guys who will spend, you know, 20 minutes, you know, looking and go back another time and a third time. And all of a sudden you've, you know, spent an hour you know, <laughs> of your collective day trying to find a bird. So I really like having it for that you know, aspect more than anything. Yeah. I've been there too. How do you train, how do you train your dog on a snipe with, uh, with snipe wings and stuff like that? No, he, he, look, he's not the best snipe dog. I'll, I'll openly admit that, but, um, you know, together we, we get the job done. I got, I started him on, on quail, uh, when, when he was around a year, I sent him up to a guy named Albert Allen who specifically trained Brittany's, um, you know, he was associated with a with a quail preserve, but did his own training on the side. So, you know, he helped really break him in and, and sort of get the get the basics, you know, under under his belt. And then I kind of just set out, uh, you know, doing it on my own. The the first season, the dog was more trouble than he was worth, um, mostly because he was ranging out too far, uh. and you know, just bumping birds that you know. He was finding them. He was moving them, but you know, they were long out of a uh, you know long ways for me, so I wasn't even getting it, getting shots on them. And we've kind of learned the game together, and and he he starts to understand you know I need to work a little closer, and I'm better at keeping him in um, you know within the kind of the 20 yard range. So if he is moving one now, he he's able to um, you know do it do it within range. In terms of pointing versus just you know flushing them they're they don't hold like a woodcock or a quail um and and that's something you you tend to you know universally read that they just don't hold you know as well as most birds and i think to some guys who are really into the the purity and the form and just having that perfect dog it can be frustrating for them and and you know frustrating for the dog because they're you know they're trained you know, steady to wing, steady to shot and all that. Again, I don't take that part of it that serious. Um, but but the, he's figured out he needs to be a little closer. Um, and when he can get the scent right on him, again, that's where it comes down to working the wind, um, being downwind of them, 
uh, he's able to point them and um, has just picked up the smell of them. So, to, you know, just by shooting them, exposing them to the wings, and um, he's put the two and two together. That's good to hear. I, I definitely want to do it at some point because I haven't really experienced that kind of third party, that you know, having the dog in the field with, with Snipe, and it sure would be a lot easier to not spend 20 minutes to find every Snipe you've shot. Yeah, that, that's the part I like. But, what, man, I tell you, if I'm out on a hunt and I see him go on a point and whether or not we even, you know, kill the bird or not, but that, that's the best part when, you know, one, one point and, and kill my days, I'm done. I could, I could go home a happy person, <laughs> you know, after that, because it's really cool to see it all come together and, you know, watching him get down, get down low and birdie and put the creep on him and uh, eventually bust that bird up. Well, tell me about marsh doodles. So this, is to my knowledge the only snipe oriented website on the internet um i mean i'll uh, i think actually there's one other so there's a snipehunter.com but um it's it's kind of a cool little spot for this very small you know brotherhood and sisterhood of crazy people and that's kind of what where i got the idea for it um yeah you mentioned snipehunter.com skip hutchinson runs that website and you know when i first started that was probably the most thorough source of information out there on snipe hunting. And, and I, I know the site's still up. I don't think he maintains it with, with net new content and, and moved some of it over to uh, a Facebook group. Uh, is but, he, he's from Florida too, isn't he? Yeah. He's up in the Tallahassee area. Um, and that guy hunts quite a bit. Um, he's definitely, you know, really, really knowledgeable on it as well. But, you know, when I started reading into it, there just wasn't a lot of information out there. You know, he, he's got a good resource. There's a handful of articles that have been written over the years, you know, about snipe hunting, but there, there wasn't a lot of information, but there also really wasn't, as you said, sort of that, that brotherhood um, camaraderie uh, type of thing around it. And then I looked at like how much sort of there is of that, when you get into say woodcock and, and, and grouse and, you know, all the, the folklore and the romance of, of going to grouse camp and, or, you know, the guys out West, uh, you know, doing, doing their form of it. And it was just sort of this little void of like, man, I'm, no, I'm not the only guy that likes to do this. There's other people into it. And, and that kind of was where the, you know, the, the brainchild of it, of it came from. And the, the, the marsh doodle, the, the story behind that is so, Snipe, Woodcock, we, we know they're in the, the same genus. Woodcock has lots of nicknames. Right. People call it, you know, the mud bat, the swamp bat. Worm burglar. Uh, worm burglar and the timber doodle. Yep. That, that's one of the probably the more, more famous ones. So uh, I don't know when it was. I was probably driving home from a hunt. I was thinking about that, the timber doodle. I'm like, okay, well, look, they're, they're, they're cousins, so to speak. Um, they're, they look very similar. They behave very similar in terms of, you know, their, how their, their diet, the way they feed. Uh, one's up in the woods, one's down in the marsh. And, you know, just creative, you know, moment coined uh, the, the marsh doodle. And from there, just kind of cashed it away. Oh, that could be something cool. And eventually that led me to grabbing the domain name and, you know, doing the, the Instagram and the blog around it. And it's really just a place to give the other people that are into it, you know, their own little bit of a rallying cry, their own, um, you know, sort of badge of honor, so to speak. Very cool. I will definitely link to that in the show notes. 
Yeah, I'm more focused on awareness and, you know, getting new people to, to do it and re hunter recruitment. The last thing we need to be doing is um, discouraging people from you know, getting out there in the woods and, and the upland stuff. Yeah, and especially because snipe hunting is not exactly the easiest thing in the world to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's easy to get into. It's hard to be good at it. Walk me through how you like to prep and cook your birds, because I always like to finish this on the on the eating aspect. Yeah, I, I want to come back. I want to talk about one other hunting uh, sure. habit, you know, style, because we mentioned it with a little bit of uh, skepticism. Okay. And I've only figured out half of this equation so far, and that is the notion of being able to decoy or sit for snipe. So I had this experience, it was last year, probably one of my more favorite um, snipe hunts of the season. And I was intending to do sort of the two for one uh, day. So I went out to sit the spot for ducks in the morning. I had my 12 gauge that day and sat on the, on the edge of this little, you know, marsh water area, built a little blind out of, you know, palmetto fronds and, and tuckered in. You know, ducks were not flying that day. Um, mm -hmm. Nice wrong time. Heard some shots off in the distance. Um, but what was flying were snipe. And, you know, I, I saw one just come in and land, you know, maybe five yards from me, right on the edge of, of you know, as we sort of described, the transition from the cover, mud, into the water. And so that's like the closest I've ever been to a, alive, you know, just snipe doing his thing and just, just watch that one. And, and, you know, took some video as best as I could and got to watch him just kind of walk around and, you know, eventually go, go out of sight. But then, then more started coming. And at that point I was like, okay, I'm going to take these things on the wing. And they were, they were flying into this mud flat and I shot three, technically four, because this was the downside of having a, a 12 gauge with number four shot at about 10 yards you can imagine the damage it did ouch i went to and i went to go retrieve this one i'm like oh i got a double no i had split that bird in half ouch <laughs> so wrong setup but they were definitely flying in and that was just really cool to, to you know watch them come in you know in and land and or they weren't i was getting them on the wing before they landed but you know seeing them come in wings cupped up feet down and everything now, that wasn't over snipe decoys. Um, my friend Matt has bought some. We, we haven't used them together, but that led me to feel like you could actually go out and decoy over them. So I want to go back to an area like that where you where you have the cover, put the decoys out, and just see what happens. Because I think, I think they would come in, and you know if not, pick them up and get on foot and walk around. So definitely let me know if that works. But I'm taking my information from Worth Matthewson, who's uh, – He's from Oregon, that he's hunted snipe all over the world, and he's hunted them since 1956. And he says that he has never, ever seen anyone successfully decoy snipe, and that there's this weird myth about snipe decoys because they, they sort of kind of maybe-ish existed back in the day, but they didn't really. So they were – this is back in market gunning days when people decoyed sandpipers and plovers and dowagers and all these other things that absolutely will decoy so there are these handmade wooden deeks of other shorebirds that either people think are snipe or they just assume that snipe are decoyable. And I I mean, I would love to hear that, yes, you had a great hunt with over snipe decoys, and, and I will I can't wait to hear it. So, But right now I'm skeptical. I, well, I am too, but I'm, I'm 
I'm gonna, Matt's going to bring his decoys down and we're going to go sit a spot or two this year and, and just see what happens. Pixar uh, didn't happen, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if it does, if it does happen, I, I like to do woodworking as well and, and uh, decoy flocking, not decoy painting. But if it, if it works, I'm going to go make some out of wood um, and, and hand paint them. Either way, it'd be cool to just to have one. Yeah. So, all right. So you got yourself a limited snipe. What do you do with them? <sighs> throw them in the freezer. I mean, throw them in the refrigerator and forget about them for a few days. <laughs> Me too. That's that's the first thing I would do. Um, I like to it let makes it... it makes them easier to pluck. And I just think I'll, I mean I do the same thing with with uh, you know ducks and woodcock. I'll let them sit for I don't know three four you know sometimes five days until I until Robin comes in and reminds me that they're in there I need to clean them. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the longer the better. Uh, then I, I like to pluck them always. They're just too small to even you know think about breasting out. So pluck them, as you know, that the skin's really fragile on yeah. this. It's a you know pain in the butt when it rips, but it's going to happen. I like to take a pair of scissors after after I pluck them, uh, gut them. I like to take a pair of scissors, go down the the spine on one side around the anus come back, you know, up the other side. And, and now I've, um, guess that's spatchcocking them. You would call it right. Clip the, clip the wings. There's really nothing to eat on, on the wings, but I'll, I'll try and keep it at the, at the first joint. And I like to keep the, the feet on. Um, I do too. I just like the way it looks. It's kind it of looks so primal and, you know, sort of medieval. It uh, does. It's sort of creepy. Cool. Yeah. And, and Robin doesn't mind it. Um, I think if I was serving it to, you know, some other people I might <laughs> chop them off, but the legs are really tasty. And oh, yeah. Of meat on them, and it makes a perfect little handle um, for them. So another cool thing is if you deep fry the whole bird or even the halves of birds with the feet on, the process of deep frying them in 350 degree oil until the, the rest of the bird is done will often leave the bones of the feet and the leg so it will tenderize them in a sense that you can eat them like a, the end of a fish fin when the uh, fish has been grilled. So it's sort of nutty, yeah. nutty, nutty, crispy. And, you know, you can't necessarily eat the whole thing unless you really fry the heck out of the bird. But I've it's read good. about that pertaining to doves. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one of the um, cookbook, we, is that I'll have to, if it comes to me, I'll, I'll let you know. But you talk about plucking them and, and frying them and eat, being able to eat the whole thing. So I always figured it would work. Snipe, I just haven't, I haven't ever tried that. We like to grill, so most of the time we'll, we'll, you know, season them with like a compound butter, and just try and grill them as, you know, quick as possible because, you know, there's not a lot there to, um, you know, protect it from getting burnt. I, I'm not a fan of putting the bacon and stuff on them, even though that would make them a little juicier and stuff. I, I want to taste the snipe, not the bacon. I know what bacon tastes like. <laughs> One thing I have done is taken bacon fat. And painted the birds with that, and then grilled them. Well, that's that's smart. That's smart. The key is, I think, with anybody we eat snipe is to not overcook this bird. Yeah. It is it is a bird that needs to be medium at the most. Have you ever tried sous viding them? Because we got I got my wife a sous vide last year. I started l- loving it for duck because we would just come out perfect in that um, and I think that might be an interesting way to to keep it at that right temperature and then throw it in a cast iron or a hot grill just to get the char marks on it 
You could. I mean, what you could do is you could pack them and sous vide considerably below what you want. So about 125, 130 degrees. And just to get the internal temperature to that to that color. And then because the problem is if you do put it in a cast iron pan after sous viding it, you're going to have flabby skin and you want to crisp the skin. By the time the skin is crisp, your meat can be overcooked. I, I have generally found, and besides an, a half or a whole bird, is very difficult to vacuum seal. It's not impossible, but it's it's not a, it's a weird shape. Yeah. So I just I tend to fry them, roast them over a in a crazy hot, crazy hot, like as hot as your oven will go. And even better, the the single best way I've ever eaten snipe was I was at a place and a guy had a, a brick oven in his backyard. Ah. And we got this brick oven at like 700 degrees. So I got these birds and it was a limit of snipe and I painted them with bacon fat and salted them and they were, they were whole. So they were whole then and I stuffed herbs inside the cavity and then I arranged them all breast side up on a cast iron pan and we put it in there at 700 degrees and in like seven minutes they were, they were perfect. Mm, but that sounds good. Oh, I was gonna say, do you do anything with the the hearts and the and the gizzards? The gizzards I don't because the gizzards are very small and the aspect of cleaning a gizzard that size fills me with terror. Um, but the hearts and livers for sure. I will if I'm if I'm on a really good snipe year, I'll I'll keep saving the livers and I usually do just throw them in with duck livers or dove livers and and make a a pate or or put it in a sausage or something like that. The hearts I like to stick on a skewer after marinating and, again, searing hot fire. Yeah, I like to take them – I will go through the effort on the on the um, gizzard sometimes and dice them up really, really small along with the hearts and, and the livers, cook that in with some you know garlic and diced up mushrooms and then work that all into like a, a wild rice. Uh, that adds a really nice – Sort of a dirty rice thing. Yeah, it adds that really nice sort of earthy, uh, you know, <laughs> innards flavor to it. But um, I, I like eating all that stuff, and I find that goes really well with them. Another thing to look for is either Cajun food or low country food. I have a recipe in my book, Pheasant Quail Cottontail, for either rail or snipe perlu. And it's that I actually do take the breasts off for those, but I don't waste the rest of the bird if I have a bunch of snipe the breast meat gets into the rice. So perlu is, is a, a cousin of jambalaya is one way to think about it. Mm-hmm. And, but with very different flavors. So the diced breast meat from the snipe goes in kind of at the end, just so it's still medium in the, in the rice, but you've made a stock, a real quick stock out of the rest of the snipes by roasting it over in a 400 degree oven till it's nice and brown and pretty and then make a real quick stock off of that, and you cook your rice in that. So you get a use out of the whole bird, even though the only thing you'll see in the plate are the, is the breast meat. So my friend Jesse will often roast his snipe. Uh, he'll pluck all the way up to the beak, and so he'll pluck the head and everything, and then use the the beak to trust the bird. It's oh. a, it's apparently, it's a European thing, and I've never seen anybody other than Jesse. Just, this is Jesse Griffiths in, in uh, Texas. Uh, he's, he's another very, very, very accomplished snipe hunter. And it might be his book that you're thinking about his, he has a book called a field, which is one of the best wild game cookbooks out there. 
I think that's it. Yeah, it's a yellow binding on it, right? Mm-hmm. It is. That's the one where I read about uh, the, the dove feet. Yeah, yep. I use that book as my source for um, how to clean them. Oh, there you go. There you go. Jesse and I have hunted snipe in Texas. Yeah, so that's something what we should mention is that you can pretty much hunt them everywhere to, you know, I'm sure varying its degrees, but every state except Hawaii has a snipe season. Yeah. From, from Alaska to, to Florida and everywhere in between. Um, so there, there's ample opportunity out there. Now, how good is it in every single state? You know, that, that I don't know, but I've talked to people all over the country uh, from from Montana and Alaska to, to Maine and New Hampshire that they get on them um, to, to varying degrees. You know, they, they are migratory. So I'd say if you're living up north, your season is, is over or winding down versus, you know, we're, we're just getting started down here. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's very much like the woodcock migration. I don't know that they migrate together, but it's about the same period of time. So that means August in Canada and, uh, and Alaska and, and into early September and to late September in the northern states. And they're pretty much all down in wherever they're going to winter by certainly by Thanksgiving and probably by early November. We start seeing a few down here late September, early October. Mm hmm. So we're we're recording this on on October 21st, and I went duck hunting yesterday, and they I didn't actually I did see some. Uh, we didn't jump any because we were duck hunting, but they were all over the marsh in Northern California on October 20th. Yep, during our early teal season, which was end of September, the last two weeks, I started seeing a few of them, you know, being out there scouting for them. Not not a lot, but enough to, you know, realize that they are, you know, starting to come down and conditions are favorable. So I, you know, at least for the southern states, I kind of put them their migration after the teal, but before, you know, the the ducks really start, you know, coming down. So that sounds about right for us. That's you know October um, into into November. Kind of run out of time, but one cool thing to to end on the, in terms of the techniques in hunting of snipe is that very often snipe season will extend after duck season. Like this is this is happens to be a year in California where snipe will last for one weekend after the duck season's over. So you get that crazy last week uh, between the end of January and the, the first weekend of February where there are no duck hunters around and you get the marsh to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's what we have as well. Ours goes till February 15th, I believe. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that most of our spots permit areas, you can't duck hunt on. There's one particular area that once the duck season closes, they, they draw the water down really aggressively and then they open it up. And, and that can be a great you know, place because they haven't been touched at all, all season long. You know, not a single shot fired on them. So, um, you know, they, they might get bumped around by hunters and hear the shots, but they're, they're not getting a lot of pressure. Now, last year it was really dry. You know, it wasn't a good year. We'll see what this year holds. Yeah, every year is going to be different. I, so far, I'm optimistic that uh, it's going to be a good snipe year. And maybe that's me just <laughs> wanting it, the pendulum to swing. But, but it's, a, it's wetter down here. We just had a really nice rain over the weekend and a couple others. Um, 
which I really was hoping for to sort of keep the keep all the wetlands, you know, recharged and from getting too dry. I think that's what happened last year. It was if they did show up, they said, eh, I'm out of here. I'm going to go move on. And, um, you know, kind of across the state, everyone was really having a hard time finding them because it was just so damn dry. But I think we're in much better shape this year. All right, Scott, where can everybody find you on the various social media platforms? Let's see. On Instagram, at Marshdoodle. Got the website, marshdoodle.com. On my Facebook, I'm just myself, Scott Lindars. I haven't switched over to that. Uh, if you want to reach me on email, marshdoodlehunting at gmail.com. All right. Sounds good. I really appreciate you being on the on the show. And uh, we need to get down to – you either need to come to California and hunt with me or I need to go to Florida and hunt with you at some point. We, clearly, we need to do both. All right. Good luck this season. All right. You too. Thanks again for listening to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. Please subscribe on any platform that you get your podcast. And if you like this episode or any of the other episodes of the podcast, please leave a review if you can. It really, really helps me out. We'll be going back to a bi-weekly format after this, which is to say every other week you can expect a new episode of Hunt, Gather, Talk. And the episode that you should be looking forward to now is going to be Hungarian Partridges. So we'll be talking to Tyler Webster of the Birds, Booze, and Buds podcast in a couple weeks, all about Hungarian partridges. Thanks again to our sponsors, Filson and Hunt to Eat. This is Hank Shaw. You can follow me on Instagram at HuntGatherCook and on Facebook in the Hunt Gather Cook group. It's a closed group. So in the questions, tell me that you heard about the group through this podcast. Again, it's Hank Shaw. I really appreciate listening and supporting this podcast, and I will see you in a bit. 